levels. Keep Are we levels? Me, 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 me. Ma me mo mo, ma mo me mo, me mo. Mr. Dowd, I'd like you to please keep your voice up and speak into the microphone so that everyone can hear you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Actual Garbage Podcast. Um, it is, what, November the 8th? That's the first time I've ever set the date on this thing. In the studio today, first time ever, first time sitter, which uh, we Probably should have done that at least one time before now, but hey, hey, no better time than the present. Lewis Wiedemann, the second half of the Responsible Herpeticulturalist. How are you doing, sir? I'm well. How about you? Oh, I'm doing all right. Good. We just got done. Oh, and Nicole. Hello, I'm the back. The other secondist and firstest half of the Responsible Herpeticulturalist, T.R. Herp. Yes. Also in the room for this discussion of not quite the same kind of film we've been doing before. This is this is no Corinne. We watched the Seven Five. Yes. A documentary about some insanely crooked cops. One in particular, uh, Lou. As the guest, you picked this movie. What's it all about, man? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 a documentary, obviously, that uh, that chronicles this 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 particular precinct in New York City during the height of the gang violence uh, of the '80s, late '70s, early '80s, and it it focuses around one particularly corrupt cop named Michael Dowd, who um, uh, sort of became a ringleader of sorts. Uh, for a lot of the corruption that his precinct was involved in. Look up upper, look in the dictionary, I don't give a fuck, and Mikey Dowd's picture is in it. Michael Dowd was a crook who ended up wearing a cop's uniform. I heard the rumors about Michael, you know, being dirty. A once in a generation, corrupt cop. The normal person that's doing wrong is going to have a fear of being caught. It's not Michael Dowd. Michael Dowd did not have any fear. Now, you know, he wasn't... Uh, alone in this no this, not these by endeavors. any yes no. and that, that's actually a fun a fun topic we can delve into is just how prevalent how much cops really look after each other yes yes um that's so, a trope in the movie yes writ large yes it is and and that's the thing so you know there was it, it really comes down to being a social commentary on the times um what led to what led to the the situation from which these cops can become so corrupt um, what was the, the 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 climate like their their landscape that they went into every single day and worked in and had to deal with and and you know the low pay the the high crime it was a lawless time for for many big cities in our country um, and it wasn't just New York City there was Whitey Bulger in Boston which we're familiar with right. Donnie Darko thing uh, Donnie Darko Donnie Brasco, Donnie Brasco. excuse me um, <laughs> So, you know, there, there was a lot of this going on. The feds were complicit in a lot of it. They were a part of it all. Um, this isn't conspiracy theory now. This is all fact. You yeah, know, this is depressingly real. Yes. yes. So <laughs> I, have, I have a little list of uh, the movie has some of the court hearing for Mr. Dowd, and he answered yes to whether or not he committed the following things. While you were in uniform and on duty, did you commit thefts? Yes. Did you commit extortion? Yes. Did you engage in narcotics trafficking? Yes. Did you protect drug operations? Yes. Did you engage in personal drug use? Yes. How many crimes and acts of corruption 
do you estimate you committed as a New York City police officer? Hundreds. Yes, I think the only thing he didn't actually admit engage to. in or or admit to was murder. Yeah, that that almost seemed prevalent. It seemed weird. Weirdly absent, I guess I would would be the yeah. way to describe it. And the way the guy is described in the movie, all the rest of the cops that they interview in that movie clearly saw him as the linchpin of the whole thing. Like he was the crazy. And he one. even yes. he even he even discussed that. He was like, I was the leader and I had to make sure that everyone else was basically submissive, you know? <laughs> and his partner his partner was like Kenny this. Urell. Kenny yes, Urell. Kenny yep. Urell, who uh he was just as complicit in it, and it's He was it's complicit, but he was by no means the guy running it. He did not have the crazy eye. Mike Dowd was the one. Yes, yes. Was the, the one. In the movie, you'll, 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 if you haven't seen it yet, spoiler alert, <laughs> it is a documentary. So All spo spoilers are, we're yes. talking about the movie. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. So in the movie, you have, you have, you know, characters like, um, um, oh, what was his name? Adam Diaz, well. Perez. Perez. And, and he... <laughs> he was he was kind of one of the drug lords, uh, the big mob heads, as as it were, in one certain area that Michael Dowd had teamed up with, and his partner Ken Urell had teamed up with, and they they started to um, to do lots of illegal things together. So <laughs> as as Perez had described them, you know he he liked Michael Dowd because he can see that this guy was crazy. The first time I saw Kenny. I knew he didn't have that gas to shit in him. He had the cop look where you say, fuck, he's a cop. Mike didn't. From day one, Mike didn't have that cop look. Right. So, and, and, and that's very telling, you know, because you have someone who, in, in, the, in the line of field that these people were in, when you're dealing in illegal, illegal activities, racketeering, drugs, all of this stuff, at these high, high levels, one of your biggest assets is being able to read people and your intuition as to, you know, is this person trustworthy or not, because all you have is your word to go on. So these, um, you know, th this is how he described these two. Very charismatic gentlemen, by the way. Um, amazing person. Oh, Mike, Mike Dowd can talk. To yes. talk your socks off. Well, on even anything. his 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 cohort, the Perez gentleman, I can't it, remember his my, name. Adam Diaz. Adam Diaz. Yes. I'm sorry, I was thinking about Baron. Oh, yeah. you were. Oh, you were talking about the gang boss. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's Adam, Diaz. Yes. Adam Diaz. Adam Thank Diaz. Adam Diaz. Twenty year old. Criminal yes. mogul bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars worth a of week. coke. Yes, like <laughs> a, a year. But yeah, yeah. yeah. he was but bringing in three hundred. I think the number they cite is three hundred kilos a week. Yeah, yes. yeah. That's that's a, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot For of bank. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, have to, you have to understand now. So let let me switch the the change the direction of it a little bit. Because yeah, we're we're covering all sorts of shit. Yeah, and we're gonna go. Uh, I'm gonna <laughs> I know, fly it's everywhere. Just such a crazy there's a, story. There's a lot to talk about. <laughs> yes, and we're gonna talk about the social com the, the the social issues and then how it relates to the movie because I think it's so important to understand how uh, someone like Adam Diaz was able to get to this position at 20 years old, being able to run hundreds of million dollars of cocaine into New York City. Right. Um, how does one get there at 20? You know, <laughs> usually we're not that, you know, entrepreneurial. <laughs> so, you know, we have to look at the city, the state of, of the, the socioeconomic state of the city, where it was. There was uh, obviously money issues, as always, when, when there are these types of societal issues. Mm -hmm. um, but there were some really 
key po turning points in New York City. You had the Cross Bronx Expressway. When they built that, who was it, Robert Moses, he built that earlier in the 50s, I believe it was. And he, for all intents and purposes, pretty much demolished part of or half of this borough to put this highway there, he was really big on transportation. He wanted to build roads And he everywhere. decided that the quickest way between two points is one straight line, so fuck anyone that's in the way of his straight yep. line. So he destroyed this entire half <laughs> of this borough, or he pretty much carved a line in it. And if you see the pictures, it quite literally looks like an alien spaceship just came down with a laser beam and just, <laughs> just cut a big <laughs> scar through the borough. And he built this highway there, this expressway. And with that, drove away a lot of businesses because it, it really became a, a hassle. So a lot of money left. And with all the money, they started to, the, the, the rich people who had a home in, in the Bronx or in Brooklyn, they started saying, screw this, I'm going to go back to my second or third home in White Plains and not deal with the, the these black folk anymore and all these Puerto Ricans so that are coming yeah, in. Anybody that could afford to leave the area did. once this expressway was yep. put in did. And then what you had was everyone who couldn't afford yeah. to leave. And then the people who could afford to leave are the ones that took all the business with them too. So essentially you were just left with a rundown Burrow. Um, burrow. Yeah. yeah. And so if you look at, if you actually go into and research the, the era, you'll see that the South Bronx, for instance, because of this, is one of the most um, desolate, destitute areas in New York City and maybe throughout the history of, New York, of modern New York City, not Gangs of New York era, but yeah. more civilized eras. But um, maybe not. It wasn't very civilized. They, they were... 30,000 buildings were destroyed and burnt down. The The owners of the building would just burn the building down for insurance money at the time. So you had these, these, these huge landscapes of what looked to be war zones. Quite literally, they looked like war zones. Rubble. And so you had an entire, I mean, a million people. There's like, what, 8 million people in New York City alone? In Manhattan, in there's Manhattan. 8 million. So, million. so yeah. I mean, there, there's like 20 million people in the entire, all the five boroughs. You had millions of people. We're not talking like a couple of, millions of people in this one small war zone that now have to figure out, how do I raise my children here? How do I get to work or get a job? How do I yeah. do anything do that I makes do money? Anything? And then on top of that, you had, the drugs were coming in because this was post- uh, Nixon said, you know, drugs are all bad, we want you hippies to go to war, so or, or we want to lock you up, so they make drugs bad, and everyone thinks drugs are bad, and now you make it a taboo, everybody fucking wants it, so everyone's doing drugs because they're poor, there's nothing better to do, they have no hope about what's going to happen when you're in that situation, so that starts going downhill. And with that, crack comes into play, cocaine comes into play, heroin comes into play, and now you have an entire section of this city that is that is fighting for territory to sell a little bit of something so that they can make a little bit of something so they right. can get on to the next day. And if you didn't protect your block, you died. And if you walked into that block, you died. And if you just happened to be a person that wasn't in a gang, you're dead. Like, it's just the way it was. It was a very, very violent time. It was lawless. People on the streets were just shooting guns in the air and having a great time, right? And this is, this is the culture in which a 20-year-old who's a little bit enterprising yeah. can start moving. With move a Colombian connection. Yes, with a Colombian course. connection. Of course. Can start moving 
hundreds of millions of dollars yeah, of 300, cocaine. 300 uh, kilos. kilos of cocaine a week. Yep. Yeah. I don't care if tomorrow the kilos goes down $2,000 a piece, $3,000, $5,000, it doesn't matter. You're already responsible for that amount. You better fucking come forward with the money. For what? What fucking, they kill you. Well, no make no difference to them. So now <laughs> at a couple of grocery stores. Yes, well that that's actually was a very popular way to buy drugs in New York is you set up the bodega even for like weed nowadays and stuff. You can still find bodegas that, that kid, aren't like real stores, but you go to the back and mm -hmm. you pick up what you're actually looking for. I was just floored as a point within uh, within the story and I don't know if they were just specifically confining it to the scope of the 75, but they only showed five stores. That's probably all the stores that were functioning in that if, area. Well, no, no, no. no. <laughs> Adam Diaz was running five stores yeah. in the precinct. I, it, that can't have been the only place. No. No, 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 no. So you have to understand that Adam Diaz also has a, a, a network of Oh, no, no, no. I, I, that's, that's how I assumed. It was just or within, anyone within else. the scope of the movie. They, they were acting like it, five stores were moving... Well, 600 pounds of cocaine a week. <laughs> <laughs> Which, that just... That seems like someone would have noticed. But maybe not. Well, <laughs> let's not forget that these people do also don't talk about things that aren't necessarily on record already. Oh, yeah. No. So, you know, if, if on the record, the feds knew about five stores that Adam Diaz was running, he's That's not going to be talking about, he's not gonna yeah. be talking yeah. about no, the no, other no. 30 stores that are under his umbrella. <laughs> you know? No, I was, I, was, I was merely implying that even if these stores were clearly moving just a shitload of product, yeah. They had some guardian angels after a while. Oh. The institutions yes. built themselves around them. Absolutely did. They're you have to understand too that it's money, and when it becomes when it becomes separated from the reality uh, of what where the money came from, it doesn't matter. So if I'm if I'm a 16 year old kid who needs a job, and I just become a clerk at the local store down the street because that's the only place that I could walk to or whatever. Right. So I'm making four bucks, five bucks an hour back then, maybe two or three bucks an hour, being a clerk but not realizing that all the money they're paying me is actually drug money. You know, yeah. that's because the owner of the store really is selling drugs out back. Or, or you have the Baron Perez guy who's setting up, you know, sound systems for people's cars. And every dollar that went into that store, I mean, if you think about it, it's all legitimate. Somebody brings cash, this guy provides a service, and he, you know, installs a radio and some speakers, and great. This guy gives them the cash, it's great. But yeah. the cops knew that... Well, you know, everybody who's going into that store is a drug dealer. So <laughs> Where all else of the are they money, getting the money. Yes. All of the money you have is drug money. Period. <laughs> yeah. So and so, and they so that's what they use. Yeah. Michael Dowd was brilliant because he understood that. And he, he 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 went there and he said, Look, I know that all of this cash is drug money. So if you don't want any problems He said, I think it was twenty five thousand dollars down payment. So he could trust me. Say no problem. Well, so, okay, so Michael yeah. Dow, you know, so we've got our 20-year-old our upstart cocaine dealer, Adam Perez, and he meets Michael Dowdy. 20, Adam Diaz. Or Adam, Adam Diaz. Diaz. And then the, you know, Michael Dowd's also a 20-year-old scrappy, or you know. 20-something, yeah. 20-something police officer. And, you know, he sees the money flow, too. Yeah. yeah. And, and he's uh, just a he, normal... Well, you know, and he's a cop, so he has, you know extra bits of authority that can help him maneuver his way into these particular situations w with very low risk. Yes. 
Well, you uh, shockingly low risk. Yes. <laughs> you have a time, and, and this is what I find most fascinating about this movie. So you have this, this situation that is set up to, to, to be catastrophic. You know, this horrible economic and socioeconomic situation in the 70s that, or 60s and 70s that led to where we are in this movie. And this movie, for the record, takes place somewhere, it takes place between 1987 and 1991. Just yeah. so no, for everyone's a reference. A little bit, little, all his little activity early. was starting in 1982-ish. His activities well, started then. It's the story he's telling is The story of the movie he got starts caught. 87. Yeah, he got caught around that that's, time. That's when he started. I think that's when he started up with Diaz. Because he was, I mean, he was doing small time stuff. Oh, before, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but the, that's the, the point. The crux of it was when it became truly institutional and he was literally being paid eight grand a week to protect Adam Diaz. I think yes. that started that's, in 87. No, you're right. You're yes. absolutely right. But, you know, so where I was going is that you have this whole situation that's leading up to where Michael Dowd is now. And let's assume that this is where he starts. He joins the force in 1980 or 82 yep. or something like that. And, um, and, and so now you have this huge situation where People don't, it, we have to remember too, you know, this isn't too far away from race, racist America too, you know. No. It, wasn't, it wasn't even a quarter century before black Civil people still rights, had to, yeah. you know, sit in the back of the bus or whatever. So, you know, it was still very fresh in a lot of people's minds. Um, so they didn't really, it, it, it seemed like anyway that we didn't make any efforts, we as a people, as a government, as a society, didn't make any efforts to, to try to help the situation brewing. Right, and and so this huge soup of stuff, I call it the societal soup that that eventually led to where they are in in eighty two. It gave cops a lot of authority. It gave like our cops today, in in essence, in the ghetto, where you know people just feel like, well, you have to be strong with these folks, or you know they're not going to respond, or or whatever. So that was one way to deal with this this uber violence that was going on in these areas of the city was to go in there and show them you're the alpha dog. So that's what they did. They, he practiced very well of going into areas and just fucking with people or making sure they understood that he was the boss. And with that, he took all of these skills, he's a brilliant socio uh, sociopath, took all of those skills and applied it to being, you know, to where he he actually achieved this huge eight thousand dollars a week, you yep. know, salary pretty much of just protecting this guy. Yeah, I found tipping that. Them off. I mean, it was really amazing just how how in you know entrenched he became in it. Yeah, like he and his partner who was complicit and essentially his mind whole, you his, never did a day in prison. Yes, not his one. partner did not. Not one. Being a rat does pay, even if you do have to look behind your back for the rest of your life. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It, I, it's just, I just thought it was, like, amazing at how entrenched he was. Like, he literally, every week, got $8,000 to tip off a drug dealer uh, about and do all... Hus hustling on the side? Yeah. He was creative. There was a lot going no, on. No, he would. He would do there anything for that guy. He's like... The... He asked us the right shotgun for him so that if there were people tailing him, they would see that he had juice, that the police were protecting his moves. No one's going to try to rob him while they see a patrol car 10 feet behind him. Well, he had a police escort. He had a police escort. Well, he did have a police escort. You know, when Adam's like, well, this guy's got problems, I, I, I need you to go steal shit from him, he would figure out a creative way to go and steal shit from another drug dealer, and like I said, he had the law on his side, and he used that to its full capability. And he also knew the cops don't give up cops. And that was... That's so beautiful. That was a really strong, strong... That runs through the whole movie. Of the all good the point, cop idea. The yes. whole, the whole uh, 
that element <laughs> is probably the only thing that the majority of people will will say positive about Michael Dowd. If you bring this up into the average crowd, people are like, oh, he's a crooked cop, he's a bad cop, fuck him. You know, like he got everything he deserved, he didn't even do enough time. Uh, a lot of people will say the fact that he wanted to kidnap and murder that woman at the end, which is speculative. I people got very hung up on the kidnapping situation at the end of the movie, even though that was kind of... Didn't happen. It was almost like an afterthought, mm. you know? Well, well it would have added It would have added second-degree murder to his list. Yes. Well, which... here's, here's the interesting... Okay. Uh, that's a funny one, because if you actually go back and watch some of his other interviews, he did an Opie and Anthony interview, uh, Michael Dowd did, Ken Urell did another interview, um, and and their stories don't match up with each other. <laughs> At all. Okay, so <laughs> Ken Urell has this very... I can't imagine why. <laughs> Ken Urell has this very specific story about him working with the, the feds or the internal affairs departments and uh, to try to catch Michael Dowd towards the end there. So... The story goes, you know, Michael Dowd gets in trouble and they're, they're, they're just supposed to sit at home and, and fucking chill out until the shit either blows over or they get, you know, called into court or whatever. But they got caught for doing something and, and, and it's bad, so they're just chilling. Well, there's one more thing they can do, like every good, you know, corrupt cop story or, or thievery or, hey, wait, there's one last job. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's, there's always one last job. Like, this is the last one. Well, there's yeah. always a last one because yeah. it can't go on forever. Yeah. So Yeah, but he was supposed to leave the country after this one, and <laughs> yeah. it was supposed to be happily ever after. So what's interesting, <laughs> Ken Urell's story was, as soon as Michael Dowd called him about this this job, uh, he called the, the, the Internal Affairs or the Feds, I can't remember which one it was, but he called the, those folks and said, hey, uh, he's still trying to run a job here, and I'm trying to get out of it because I'm already fucked. You know, yep. he got caught, and he's like, I don't want to add more to my sentence here. So they convinced him to, 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 let's snap him then. Let's try to catch him in the act of this yeah. job so we can use this. And then, supposedly, according to Michael Dowd, he thinks that they were going to add that kidnapping to make it worse for him. So yeah. they're trying to yeah. add that kidnapping and, and an accessory to second-degree murder or whatever. That's that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. I think that's why he's so contentious about it. That's right. And and so and it's what's interesting is... You know, you hear the tape in the documentary where it says, hey, you know, it's no big deal. We just put her in the trunk and, you know, yeah. just tie her up, put her in the trunk. It's no big deal. Yeah. And according Colombians to will take over it from there. Yeah. <laughs> so apparently, so everyone thinks, well, no, Michael Dowd's guilty in that. You know, he's the one that was, but Michael Dowd's story, this is what I found interesting. I think it was in the Opie and, Opie and Anthony interview. Okay. He said, he goes, you know, what you don't hear is the half hour of Ken trying to convince me that that's what we should do. So the part you hear in the movie is basically Michael Dowd saying, he's look, okay, we'll fucking do this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, okay. he's, he's basically just trying to get him to move on to the next topic, he was saying, because yeah. he was like, he kept talking about this, uh, you know, this kidnapping, and I was like, fine, okay, we'll kidnap yeah. her, we'll put her in the trunk, we'll fucking, no big deal. Yeah. And and that's what you I'll heard in the movie. I'll into this, because it is yeah. funny, that cut is very selective in yes. the movie. It is. Yes. Yes. And I find that interesting because the movie did a, such a good job trying to be neutral yeah. that that one element kind of was like a black mark on it for me. Because you weird, made yeah. it seem like, you know... And it really did sway kind of general opinion. Yeah. When you look at stuff, like, people really people really think he was out there, like, ready to kill this girl to and, yeah. and was, like, ready to do all this. And it's... The it was Kenny's words, never mind. Go to the tapes. Listen to the tape. Listen, 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 listen to me now. 
this is what happens. She'll be tied up in the back, and then if they want her, you got her in a hotel room somewhere, and that's it. The guy had a code. Okay, that's what you that's what we don't see. We see somebody and we think that they're incapable of 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 feeling any kind of remorse or incapable of having any kind of a, a you know, code of conduct or morals or whatever. He did. He wouldn't he never ratted. Never ratted on a cop. That was his thing. The cop was out there to protect you. If you're a cop and he's a cop, you guys have each other's back because it's a fucking war zone out there. If you said blue, I said blue. You know, you said green, it was green. You know, I don't know. Johnny says it's green. I I saw green. You, you don't you didn't, you always took the side of the cop that was with you because he was the only one that was going to back you up when you needed help. And what else do we have if we don't have each other's back? Yep. So they never ratted on each other. And if you're a rat, fuck you, you deserve Zai. Period. Like you said, they're going to forever walk around with their head, like looking over their shoulder because yep. that's a fact. And, you know, Michael Dowd had a code. He served his time. People think you're not enough. I, I, it's not my place to judge. I mean, to be that honest is, with you. It, I, is, I, it is such a fascinating thing, though, that he is now out of jail and he's able to talk about all it's this. Yeah, after, I love yeah. it. After having come clean to yeah. the extent that he did. that That is why we're yeah, talking I mean, about it. That's he, why there's a documentary. Because he admitted yeah. to a very large laundry list Shut of stuff. Thanks. And he's very comfortable talking about all of these yeah. these things now. Well, he's going to be very rich over this if he plays his cards right. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, it's... But it's it's in having talked about the institutional side of it, and that's where it, there's not really a... I don't get a huge sense that he feels guilty about virtually any of it. And it's and the thing is, even though part of that is sociopathy, I absolutely see where he comes from with that. Because yes. the way that he talks about everybody getting into this... Like, uh, I, I listened to Joe Rogan's podcast that yeah. he did yes. with him. He did another interview with Michael Dowd. And he mentions that Ken Urell, who is the cop of the two, he's the one who yeah. felt like law enforcement was his, you know, calling. his actual calling, was still doing shady shit on the side. The re they don't get into this in the movie specifically, but Ken was abusing the overtime system for the police, where he would go, he would deal with domestic violence disputes. He would in the basically of the night. he would he would just find people having disputes, arrest husbands, and get eight hours of overtime yeah. taking a nap waiting for them to get processed. And but he would then, do it at night yeah. intentionally so yeah. that, so that he, he had to wait eight hours. He had to hours. wait until the end of yeah. Yeah. yeah, so he was already abusing the, he was abusing the system. In the beginning, as a good rookie cop, you're gonna vouch for what you find, no matter what, no matter what it is. And then after probably a year or two, and you, you've been driving back and forth to work for the last, you know, 400, 600 doors of duty, and you, know, you feel a little bit underappreciated, you feel like no one really cares, you know, you're really not stemming the flow of crime like you thought you were gonna, and all of a sudden you see an opportunity come along and, you know. And then Mike basically came into his life and showed him there's a better way. There's, yeah. a, there's another level. To well, that's what I mean. We can, you want to make some real money? But here's, <laughs> here's what's interesting, and this is a very good point. You bring this up, and, 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 and it's also really, I think, important to, to illustrate that 25% of the, the NYPD was corrupt. They were 25% of 35,000 police officers. <laughs> okay? So we're talking almost 8,000 police officers were corrupt. All right, do that math. Just think about that in your head, and if it doesn't blow up, think of this. This one guy wasn't the problem. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Michael Dowd was a product of the problem. Yeah, he, he was, was an enabler at best. Well, well he was definitely and an enabler. They all enabled each other. he was, he was very good at taking advantage of the situation. And out of those 8,000, you had clicks. You had different precincts that behaved differently. You heard stories in the book, or in the movie, they described it too, where one precinct, they, they were talking to the fire department, and the fire department's here, like, what's up with all your cops coming in getting all of our ladders and axes <laughs> because they were just breaking into, like, drug dealers' houses and stealing their money. Yeah. And this was just like regular cops, fuck it. I'm gonna, or they would, <laughs> here's the interesting one, they were stealing those stupid poker machines, the Joker poker machines, yeah. and <laughs> just picking it up and putting it in their trunks and driving it home and then taking the change out of it. It's like <laughs> absurdity at its finest. <laughs> All done for the just cause of ripping off bad people. That's right. Yes. And, and does that make it right? Wasn't like you were hurting people, quote unquote. You are hurting a fucking scumbag drug dealer. Eh, probably not, but the uh, <laughs> but uh, it was funny. You mentioned uh, you mentioned uh, they talk about precinct seven seven. Yeah. The one you know their friendly neighbors who had a massive investigation into their affairs. Yes. Um, that actually empowered Mike because Mike saw the politic yes. behind New York police departments not wanting to have another scandal. Yes. He. He saw that as his green light. That's right. That they yes. just got done because rooting out all the crooked and, cops. And he knew that they'll do whatever it takes to make sure that whatever he's doing does not get out because they don't want to deal with that. Yeah, and yeah. that's the cops covering the cops back. Yes. Now even at the upper echelons, yes. they suddenly don't want that. The last thing the police department wanted after the 7-7 was the seven five to go down in this bust situation as well? That. Well, at that I mean, at that time, so and, and we mentioned, so we brought dumb. this up before, but it, it, it's worth it's worth mentioning again and reiterating. At that time, this flowed all the way up to the FBI. You know, yep. these things th these things flowed like just you can track it back to feds that were complicit in this in these activities that were tipping off you know, uh, mob heads and drug dealers and these people yeah. because they were informants for them. So, you know, you had to understand, if I can become an informant for a cop and I'm some big-time drug dealer or part of some organization, that's cool, but who's to say that I'm not going to play the cop? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's like, a two-way street. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I never understood this, that cops were like, hey, we'll put you in jail unless you become an informant or whatever, whatever deals they spring with people to become informants. It's like one of those, if I'm a drug dealer and I fear the police, you know, and these aren't people who are like, who live happy in a nice white suburban home and, uh, oh my God, if I get arrested, it'll be the end of the world. It's I mean, if they get arrested, it'd probably live better than they did when they grew up in this environment, <laughs> you know? So it's one of those situations. I don't think a lot of these people really feared getting arrested. They feared not being able to do what they were always doing. This is what we know how to do. This is what how we they, make millions of dollars. So And they can bring the law back on their side right. in a depressingly simple way. Yeah, let's be, let me be an informant. All right. Yeah. Let me go tell you that, hey, my, you know, competitor is going to be shipping out two kilos of coke over there. Okay, go get well, my that competitor. Was, that was kind of like the Adam Diaz. I mean, the only thing he was scared of was not getting his payment to the Colombians. Because yeah. that was the only thing that mattered. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens on your end. As long as you have your money to pay the Colombians for you're the good. stuff they dropped yeah. off, you're good. That was the only thing that guy feared. Well, he, he just needed give, to buy the product. Yeah, he That's didn't it. give a shit about, like, anything that was going on in the... He take care of it. Like that was that was small potatoes yeah, compared yes. to pissing that off chain the Colombians. Has to keep moving. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's all. <laughs> there was a there was a This American Life about a related thing to this having the police in bed essentially w with the informant yeah. concept is 
that feels, and I, I can absolutely understand that if you're at the level of Colonel, you're, you're at the top of these investigations, I can see the appeal of having an information network of criminals. Yes. But the problem is that bureaucracies just almost across the board suck at being clever. Yes. And the problem is that informants <laughs> and they're aren't necessarily clever people. Yes. And it doesn't adapt well. Bureaucracies yeah. don't adapt to, to quick changes and emotional changes. And well, that's and a problem. Just espionage in general. Like there was a, this story on This American Life about the DEA set up a front to buy back. Um, they were. It was a. Uh, I think the weapons one. It may have been. It may have been ATF actually. ATF. But they basically they were trying to get guns and tip-offs on where guns were being distributed along the Mexican border. Yeah. And they set up a, a storefront, but because they don't have people who do this shit, like, they have people who do it, but they don't yeah. understand how to do they it. They ended up being complicit in this activity. They were getting tip-offs. <laughs> they were... There were people who were seeing red flags, like, the UPS people came to their store, and they, their front was that they were a distribution center. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they told the UPS people, no... We're not shipping anything. Okay. Like, they couldn't even keep up the facade to that degree. Yeah. The criminals are so far ahead of them. Like, they yeah. can't... And, the, and crime increased in the area around this storefront because they were selling... Uh, they were buying guns. Yeah. So people were robbing houses to have guns to sell them. Yes. That's right. Yes. Like, this is... And the thing is, I, I see it. I can see the meeting room where the people are talking about this, and it was a great idea on paper because it's a clandestine way to just sort of soft, but they don't think it through far enough, and the criminals, because their lives are actually on the line. And this is what they, they do for a living. They think about this shit all the time. <laughs> they are always one step ahead of you. Yes. People don't realize that, okay, see, law enforcement, did the, they, they haven't grown up. Like, like these criminals have. They don't have the same life experience. Like we were talking about that yesterday. We don't, they don't have the same life experience that these criminals do. You know, I, I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut during one of the, 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 the worst eras in, in crime or gang violence in Hartford, in that area. Um, we talked about the South Bronx. I've known yeah. people who grew up in South Bronx and looked at me from Hartford and said, oh shit, you had it bad. <laughs> <laughs> There's an episode of Gangland about my town, about my neighborhood that I grew up in. I mean, I can point out streets that I used to hang out in and, and, and smoke pot behind the dumpsters. Like, you know, this was a terrible, terrible time, lawless. We had to call the feds in. Uh, we had shootouts at school, knife fights at school. Um, uh, first day of senior year in high school, I saw some kid get his head bashed in, but seven other kids with bricks in their hands, and I saw them haul his body away into the ambulance. It, it was not a fun time, but with that, it brings a, a perspective that other people who don't witness this sort of environment, who don't live in this sort of environment, or even allow themselves to understand this environment, they don't have. They don't have this experience. Yeah. They don't understand it. And and so you have a cop now, or or suits in a in a meeting trying to devise some strategy to do this to this plan yeah. let's do this this little shop or this distribution center and let's do this but they have no fucking idea how these people think yeah. you know and, and they're just, trying to use soft power yeah. yeah and just and you know i've always explained this to nicole because there's it's hard to articulate it is it becomes a, an instinct but it's really silly, stupid shit that i mean it could come down to like when you're down walking down the street you don't look at somebody in the eye 
You just don't. Yeah. That's a fight. Because you don't need to. You, that's a fight. <laughs> well, you know, you know, everywhere else you can do that and say hi, and you know, we're yeah. in suburban Florida. But yeah, this if is you're, great. yeah, if but you're, if I'm in Park Street on the corner of, you know, it's called Park Manor. I mean, it's, it's this. Uh, South Green, Park Street and Main Street. That's where Snake used to hang out from the Savage Nomads. And like I would sit there and talk to this guy and you know, that was a terrible fucking place to be. It was, uh, my bus stop was literally in front of a, uh, a, a junkie house. Like it was ridiculous. Um, but it, it, it provides you with this level of like, okay, I understand how these people think. I understand, kind of. I'm not saying I'm an expert on it, but you know, I've hung out in these people. I know how to act, interact. Right, yeah, you, you can, at least you have can, exposure. To yeah, them. you yeah. can. You know how to interact with I, them. When I first, so when I moved down here, and then I got this job that I'm in now, three, four years ago. And when I first started, the the security guy at the building that I I went in the first day, go in to start the job, you got to get your card and all that bullshit. The security guy at the building, you know, we we got to chatting. Talking about oh, where are you from? Where am I from? And I could tell he's from New York because he's got the he's got the Brooklyn accent and all this other stuff. And we're we're talking, and he goes on about gangs in the seventies and blah 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 blah. And funny enough, that guy knows Snake, the guy that was in a wheelchair <laughs> when I was sixteen years old. We were he would just talk my ear off while I was waiting for the bus to go to work, you know. And and this guy knew Snake, and and this guy can talk to me for hours at work. You know, every time I'd walk in, he would sit there and be like, hey, man, what's up? I'm some white-looking dude with a button-up shirt going in my IT job <laughs> in Florida. and But it's because I know how to approach these folks. I know what not to say, what to say, right. you know. It, it, it When you learn all of that, you can interact with these people in a way that actually is more normal than, as if it were, I'm better than you because I'm a cop and you're a fucking scum. Or you know, and 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 when you devise plans that that are, that are based on that, it's just not going to work. These people don't know what the hell they're working with. Criminals are always one step ahead of you because they have to think like a fucking criminal. Unless <laughs> unless they're the cops, in which case they're thinking that once. At, and when I say cop, I'm talking about at the low level, the people yeah. on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, that's a little. That's there is a difference. Yes. There's a, there's a reason those people at the lower levels do have each other's back because that's basically a culture they adopted from the people that they are around all the time. Yes. Absolutely. And well, it's, I mean, it works. Some, it works okay. <laughs> there are some fundamentals. Let's put it, you know, we were talking about this earlier too in the car. We, there are some fundamentals to, to, to the way people behave, you know, the behavioral fundamentals. And if, you, if, if you're lost and alone mm -hmm. and you have nothing, people get together and form groups. You know, for protection and for help or whatever. They get together in some fashion and then they protect each other because that's all they have. And, and, and it starts to build up. It sounds cheesy. It sounds like some silly sociology experiment. But this is fucking true, you yeah. know? And we've seen it time and time again. You have a tribe of fucking uh, pissed off Pakistanis over here. And this tribe over here who doesn't agree with them. And, and all of a sudden, India and Pakistan have nukes pointed at each other, ready to go at any second. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> someone someone makes eye contact the wrong way. <laughs> that's the extreme. And there we go. <laughs> so, you know, we never really. And I think it really speaks to how we, we, we raise our, or how we look at governing our society, ultimately. At the end of the day, this is what this movie means to me, is that it's an illustration of when we, and this is gonna sound like some weird political thing, but when we don't take into consideration the social aspects of how we govern people, we're never gonna get anywhere with stuff like this. 
ghettos are never going to go away. The poor are never going to get well, anywhere. Well, the problem is, is it affects both sides, too, because not only are the lower socioeconomic areas not getting any better, you know, they're just, you know, basically... Uh, have languishing have, for decades. Yeah, yeah, you know, and they're just, like, entrenched in a drug war that's been ongoing since the 70s. But the thing is, um, it's also not helping the good guys in a sense either because they have to deal with them because they're dealing with them and then they just fall into the same routine you yeah. know like so they're just as corrupt as the people I mean, that they're going after the drug war is a perfect example of this I don't mean to go off on this tangent because it's a bigger topic but <laughs> I mean in the context of this story it's a very important actually when you think of you know the people that these that, that these cops were 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 sworn to go and try to protect and and police and all of that jazz. You know those people were just junkies and crackheads and cokeheads and they were drug dealers and they were gang members that were lawlessly yep. killing each other. You know, if it, what if we didn't have the drug war? Would that have ever happened? Would that landscape be there for these cops to commit this corruption? You know, and I know it's a the very cops. Yeah, that's that's the weird angle is the cops in this because there have been times when you didn't. I you can fund a criminal organization through insurance. Yes, this, mm. oh, these, absolutely. These things happen before. You don't need drugs, but drugs completely enabled what Mike did. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, if we think about it, well, because drugs, drugs make a lot of money for these people. Well, drugs They're, generate a lot of cash, and, and cash, yeah. it's it's the a cash, lot easier the, to... The laundering aspect of this yes. is exactly what made it easy for Mike. How important was that New York City paycheck to you at this time? Well, I used to forget to pick it up. To do what yeah. Did. That's right. But if we, if we think about it this way, the amount of effort we spend training people to fight this drug war, the amount of effort they spent on more bodies because we need to arrest more drug people, you know what I mean, drug yeah. offenders. And, and I honestly believe that if we took a better approach to that at that time, uh, I'm not trying to sway the conversation to today's yeah. issues, but at that time, if we instead of looked at these drugs as this criminal activity, we looked at it as this mental issue or, or health issue that we could maybe rehab people and give better education, but we didn't do that. We Because it was the black people at the time. It was the yeah. Hispanics, yeah. it was the Puerto Ricans, Nobody the blacks, the Dominicans, the Haitians, you know. Yeah, exactly. And and you know what? We all moved out of those boroughs anyway. Fuck them. Yeah. We live in Manhattan, the White Plains, or Westchester, whatever. Fuck those yeah. people because, you know, they're in their little rubble war zone. Yeah, like, like I'm not going to that ghettos. area. Yeah. They're, they're in their ghettos. <laughs> they're, they're over by Pine Hills. They're yeah. over in wherever, Compton. They're over in Oakland, whatever. You know, but... I mean, for what it's worth... Mike Dowd, Chicky, Kenny Rell, yeah. and the other guy are all white. Yes, oh, yes. All yes. the cops yes. in the movie are white guys. Yes, oh, they are. Because at the time, there how many black cops were there? Yeah. Well, and they, they drove in yes. that precinct. They did not live anywhere no. near. No. Where no. <laughs> well, that's no, that's no, what no, both no. of them commented about that. They're like, so yeah, our first, our first job out of the police academy, they put us here. Yeah. In a middle of a war zone. Pretty much. Radio doesn't stop. It's one call after another, after another, after another. You got a backlog of 200 jobs to answer already. So you handle one job. Now you're down to 199. No, the calls are still coming in. In the south, in the east side of New York. And this is why a lot of people will blame Mike Dowd for being, you know, this this kingpin and all of this and the brains. And he was, you know, he really was. I I find it very interesting because it's 30 years later. It has no bearing anymore on anything pretty much yeah. it makes for good conversation and i think it makes for hindsight is 2020 type stuff yeah. where you look back and say okay this is fucked up maybe we this should not probably do wasn't this. the best way to approach yeah. this situation and and <laughs> you know and i'm not saying that 
it, it's worked in that regard, but I think we should use it in that regard. But um, at the end of the day, I don't hold anything against the guy anymore, you know, and it's not a very popular opinion, but I don't. I find his stories absolutely fascinating, and I'm glad that he can sit there and tell it in such an emphatic fashion that makes it interesting and engageable. Well, there, and it's extremely informative. Absolutely. Yes. And it's informative. It's an informative in a way that no straight and narrow individual can possibly convey that's what's right. going on. That's well, that's right. what I mean, because he doesn't feel like, because there's no, like, remorse or, like, emotion with it, like, he'll just, he could just tell the story. I mean, he feels equally as much gangster as he is cop. Mm -hmm. So, like, he... He's not ashamed of either side. And he's not alone. It would be one thing if he was, you know, it would be one thing if it was the Charles Manson scenario where there really is just the one, one fucked up yeah. dude. <laughs> yeah. There's really, really good evidence he wasn't the only crazy yeah, sociopathic alpha. He was just very good at it. Well, I mean, this also, he was sociopathic, and I have this theory about sociopathy being part part chemical and part nurturing. Oh yeah, issue. no, it's yeah. And it's, I think it's a threshold. Yeah, and I think to, for, in his case, it's entirely uh, an environmental nurturing aspect of it, where how he was brought up in the environment that he was brought up in, with the opportunities presented to him, this is the way he he chose to handle it. I never had a fear about getting busted because the cops around me would never give me up. And you know, not everybody knows how to handle things differently. So, you know, I think he has a lot of sociopathic tendencies to, to be, a lot of people will say, oh, wow, he has no remorse. He's got no fear. He doesn't feel sorry about anything. I think, well, I think he does have a couple of those things. It's Absolutely. just that they are overridden by the, at, at the time, I'm not talking about now. Yeah. Well, now he talks of, about it like he has no issue with it. Well, that's what I mean. But you know, that's he's what a lot of people. 12 years to stew. And like I, I said, that's, that's what I said. And this is yeah. 30 years ago. Like, this he's is my not point. a police officer anymore, you know? Yeah. I'm <laughs> just bringing up the fact that a lot of people still hold on to the fact that, you know, he was a dirty cop or whatever. And, and to me, it's like, well, here we are 30 years later. He's done his time, whether you think it's enough or not. But, yeah. you know, I, I like the fact that he tells it very poignantly, very, uh, you know, honestly. Yeah. It, it's it's a good... I, I get that I get that people see it as perverse that he is, in some sense, profiting now off of what he did. But okay. I think as a social good... <laughs> That absolutely outweighs it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, absolutely. I think it's not even close. I mean, I guess I don't think of things like that. I don't look at it like, you know... Um, I don't normally. <laughs> I don't compare things. To, I don't compare things to like, oh, the the good that this story is doing today outweighs the bad that he ever did. I don't look at it like that because in in my head, it's it's in the past. There's stories now, and I love when people can tell me a story like that without and, like. And it's a crazy story. Like it's definitely <laughs> it. worth investigating. Yeah. So if if you have not seen the Seven Five, I think uh, we rented it off of Amazon. Amazon. Yeah. Um, I think you can is, go to the Mike Dowd or the Michael Dowd and, and click on his link and give him a dime there. or a quarter or something. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it is a crazy documentary, yeah. and I'm really glad that these stories are, you yeah, know, I'll able be to open. be told because if, they're, if they're if radical. You're if you're interested in any other uh, movies, or there is the Whitey Bulger documentary that's on Netflix. There's also one called Rubble Kings that describes a lot of the gang violence in the '70s in New York, and it talks about that, you know, expressway and everything being built. Um, and, and just go on YouTube and look up Michael Dowd because I can listen to that guy talk for hours. Yeah. Uh, his stories are just insane to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. Yeah, yes, it the, is. And the, the Joe Rogan experience interview with him is it's very an good. excellent supplement to the movie. Yes. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And Joe Rogan has a great way of take, getting it out of him, too. You yeah, know? and he, he holds, Joe Rogan holds no grudge against this guy whatsoever. No. No, <laughs> no. Joe Rogan holds no grudge against many people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He tries to That's be 
he he tries to be neutral a lot a lot of things. All right. You wanna cover anything else, or we're gonna wrap it up? Up to you. I don't know. I think we can we can wrap it up. We've got our first uh, documentary social commentary. Yes. (laughs) And Joe Rogan did smoke that cigar. That Adam yes. is a cigar. Yes. I looked it up. There isn't that much information about it, but there is like a couple little mentions about Adam Diaz having his own cigar company. But there's, <laughs> I'm sure it's some sort of front for something. <laughs> no, I'm not making that accusation. <laughs> he, was, he served his time as well. He oh, yeah. served eight years and got deported to Colombia. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that was an interesting one. It looks like he's keep taking care of himself right. well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know. I think well, I he's... think he's at the point where, like, you know, they can't get him on anything. So he can just sit back and That's fucking I mean. laugh about yeah, it now. Yeah, you know, because like... he was in the documentary. He looked well. You know, he looked like he was doing good. You don't get to the level. <laughs> you don't get to that level that he, re- you know, reached at 20 years old without having some charisma. And charm and being confident in your, you know, your the way you well, and carry he played yourself. it smart. I and mean, he didn't get himself killed, yeah, and yeah. he served his time, and he's still doing okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he he put on, <laughs> he almost put on an air for the interview of yeah. being professional. But it is clear that when that person talks to you in a normal context, he's got some dagger eyes on him. No, like, he's nuts. Like he's, he's insane. The, the, yeah, it's he's he wear, part, I think he wears sunglasses. Yes. You can still, you, yeah, yeah, you can still tell that staring at that man in the face is just a horrifying experience. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, he brings it up when he talks about, like, oh, well, that guy isn't here anymore. No, I'm not saying I killed him. He's not around anymore. And, and the way he brings it up, you're just like, ooh. Okay, he's serious. Yeah. He fucking scared. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty of that guy. I, there's so much gold in this one <laughs> in this one documentary that can spin off into five different movies and six different books and seven different TV shows. It's it's so gold that it's it's interesting to me, and I'm excited to see what's going to happen because I think there is a book coming out and then there's going to be a movie. There's I, there's yeah. there has to be a movie at some point. I, I can't imagine. From what I there heard, there being, is, but yeah. I don't know. Um, anyway. Yep. All right. Okay. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Lou. My pleasure. Thank you, Nicole. We'll do it again later. Yeah, you will. <laughs> We're going to be doing a trip to the moon. If you haven't watched a trip to the moon yet, it's 12 minutes long. Watch the damn movie. And the fact that we can watch it is amazing. It's so a miracle. So take that opportunity to indulge in a little piece it of is film history. the finest special effects you'll find when you understand that it was done in 1902. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like the Matrix of yeah. 1902. Yes. And with that, this is David Paddock signing off. Thanks, everybody, for listening. My dreams are about being a good cop. Sad, though. Never happened.